Kubrick's Universe, Episode 5, Dean Treadway. Real one. Our highly skilled team are focused on bringing you the optimal experience. experience. So many answers we may never know. Too many questions, get on with the show. No time for the chorus, only this bus. It's true, it's It's Kubrick's Universe, the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Millions of years ago, before the human race existed, an adventure began. An adventure that ultimately leads man to confront his own destiny in an odyssey of exploration. started the whole thing. Oh, yeah. We thought it might be the upper part of some buried structure, so we excavated out on all sides. And what's more, it seems to have been deliberately buried. A shrieking monolith, deliberately buried by an alien intelligence, starts man on a mission half a billion miles into space. With three of its five crew asleep in hibernation, spacecraft Discovery One voyages towards Jupiter. Controlling the mission is a talking computer known as HAL. HAL, you're the brain and central nervous system of the ship. Does this ever cause you any lack of confidence? Let me put it this way, Mr. Raymer. No 9,000 computer has ever made a mistake or distorted information. In the first year of the 21st century, there is strange and wondrous beauty, startling experiences that jolt and mystify, and the danger of complete obliteration. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. And now, your journey is just beginning. Everybody and welcome back 
It's a new episode of Kubrick's Universe. Thanks for being with us. At the boards is Johnny Numero Uno, our producer, Mr. Stephen Rigg. I'm your host and humble narrator, Jason Furlong. We have a really cool interview for you today with Dean Treadway. Dean is a movie geek. I mean a true expert in that field and a man with a passion to match Mel Gibson's Christ. Sorry, just a joke. Dean was brought up regularly attending Atlanta drive-ins and watched at least four or five films every week with his parents back in the 70s. So Dean got hooked at a pretty early age. Uh, After he graduated high school, he enrolled at Georgia State University, where he immediately was drawn to the school newspaper and got to interview Tom Cruise, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Nicolas Cage, Stephen King, and Spike Lee, as well as dozens of other people in the movie biz. Uh, Now, Dean actually attended the premiere of Peter Himes' 2010, the unofficial sequel, of course, to 2001, and he did so for a report feature for his school paper, and it didn't take long for his enthusiasm to take him forward to becoming the editor of the paper. He worked at one of the first video stores on the planet called Video Room. It was in New York City, and there he first learned to talk films, and part of his job description was, in fact, recommending movie rentals to a lot of notable customers, including celebrities like Dick Cavett and um, Bill Cosby. Sorry. Um, In the 90s, Dean worked at Atlanta's oldest movie theater, the Plaza, and in the programming department of Turner Network Television. He also co-hosted a movie review show on public access TV for a long time. Now, Dean Treadway is the co-host of Movie Geeks United, which is one of the favorite podcasts of we at Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society. Uh, It is one of the most well-loved movie podcasts out there, plain and simple. Over 4 million downloads, and they've been broadcasting since 2007. Dean's gotten to interview the likes of Greta Gerwig, Lalo Schifrin, Mike Lee, Burt Reynolds for the show, and he's represented Movie Geeks United at both New York and Atlanta film festivals. Dean's estimated that he's watched over 25,000 films, and he is the founder and creator of the brilliant Filmic Ability website. The website is called Filmic Ability. And it's your one-stop place to find out about movies, man. It's a real mine of movie info, a treasure trove. Dean is a movie expert, a writer, a blogger, filmmaker, editor, film festival programmer, actor, podcaster, and a very talented artist. He prefers to describe himself as an enthusiastic appreciator rather than a critic, which we find very cool. But whatever it is that he is... You can be sure to be enlightened by Mr. Dean Treadway. Dean, so awesome to have you on the show, man. Thanks for being with us. Welcome to Kubrick's Universe. Wow, thanks. Uh, I've never, I've never heard it uh, uh, said. I, I've, I've written about it, but I've never heard my life, you know, encapsulated in that way. So it's, it's great to hear. We're going to make you a star. Yay! It's about time. <laughs> you already are. Well, I, 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 I'm going to start by asking you a question. 
why did you want to interview me for this thing? <laughs> <laughs> Dean, I'll answer that one. Uh, I mean, basically, I've been listening to Movie Geeks for about eight eight years now, and I uh, and, and then I subsequently went back for the the first three years as well. So I'm kind of very familiar with you guys. And obviously you've done the Kubrick series, so I know like you've got a, an interest in, in, in the subject. You posted on Facebook, a, what, last week or the week before, your 2001 blog. And uh, it just got me thinking, you know, we're just starting doing these interviews, trying to speak to people who are, who are you know, who like Kubrick, who've worked with Kubrick, who've got an interest there. And I, I just thought you're going to be perfect. You, you're good on, on your podcast, so, you know, I thought you might uh, like to join <laughs> us on ours. <laughs> Oh, that's good. I'm glad, I'm glad you guys enjoy the show. I, uh, you know, it's funny. We do. I, uh, I personally, I, I throw into the show, and I'm kind of in a bubble. I, I don't know how many who's reacting to it. You know, I've only recently had, you know, I've had a few fans uh, reach out to me. Uh, a couple from the UK, and uh, one from New Zealand, and one from India, and wow. one from Atlanta. Uh, so. I just don't know who's listening to it or whatever. So I'm glad people are listening to it. That's all I had to say. It has a great reputation. I've known about movie geeks for yeah, not as long as Steven, but for years, certainly. Well, that's that's good. I, I assume a lot of people are listening. So, uh, so it's good. But it's kind of good also for me not to even know about it. When I talk to the, when I talk to those two guys or, or three guys, depending on who's on the show or whatever, when, when we talk, I just like to like to think of it as like friends talking, you know, like. Well, that's like, what this is. That's what that's that's our approach for what it's worth. Yes. Yeah, I think that's the best way to go about it. So. Absolutely. I mean, when we kind of uh, hatched this idea, we all agreed it should be for the listeners as opposed to a bunch of fanboys kind of talking about how much we love Stanley Kubrick. Um, it, it has to be. You know, theater of the mind. It has to be interesting for the listeners, or it wouldn't be worth doing. So we have fun with it. We, it, we hopefully we just make it conversational amongst friends. Yes, that's the best. That's the best approach. Well, Agreed. okay. So I, I assume you have a lot of questions. So I guess, uh, I guess, fire away. I'm curious to see how this is going to turn out. We're going to have your name in lights overnight. <laughs> It's just a thrill to be here. So I'm, I'm ready to get to the question. Let's do it. I mean, this is a thrill for me, too, because uh, me being a, uh, a fledgling uh, podcast host, getting to interview one of the best in the game, our listeners are, uh, in fact, being treated to Kubrick Universe's first meta podcast. If you <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, yeah, cool, cool and super cool. Away we go. Um, I guess my first question, Dean, is uh, by way of a quote of yours from uh, your latest blog on your website, Filmic Ability. And uh, I just want to read this quote because I think it's great. Um, you said, 2001, A Space Odyssey has long been my favorite film. I first saw it at Atlanta's Rhodes Theater early in 1977 at age 10 though I suspect I caught a glimpse of it as a younger child while visiting a drive-in with my parents. I can still remember them loudly complaining about it in a way that instantly made me want to see it. When I finally did, uh, its overwhelmingly eloquent vision transformed my soul, 
leading me into a life of film study, filmmaking, and film writing. After seeing it literally a hundred times, at least 60 of them on the big screen, I unquestionably consider 2001 the best film that has ever been made or ever will be made in any genre, end quote. Wow. So, Dean, what was it that, you know, and anything you can add that made you feel so strongly about 2001? Please describe. Okay, well, uh, let's just, uh, I guess, go back to the day that I, the first day that I remember seeing it. And I'll give you more emotional nuance than what's in the, than what's in the filmicability piece. Mm. Uh, uh, because I, I sort of left the emotional nuance beh behind I, in the piece. I didn't really uh, try and uh, dissect the movie for people or anything like that. I just wanted mm -hmm. to make it. Just wanted to make the piece sort of entertaining for people to uh, read. Uh, but um, uh, okay, so the first day that the day that I remember seeing the the film for the first time, I remember it was a Saturday afternoon. Uh, I went with my uh, my friend Jane Garvey, who was a, a, a the next door neighbor to my grandmother, uh, and uh, she sort of helped me um, foment my early, uh, I guess, intellectual development or whatever. She would give me she would give me books to read and and certain albums to listen to, and and mm. uh, and we went to the movies a lot because she knew I loved the movies. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I was with her, and she she's also one of the people that kind of helped me uh, figure out how to how to break down films in order to sort of uh, see what was underneath what we were seeing uh, to to understand the the subtext of certain movies. Uh, mm. I re I remember uh, I remember two thousand one being an early uh, an early one, but I remember later on like certain movies we went to see together like uh ordinary people or uh um, yeah yeah uh, things things like that that uh it the uh, you know ordinary people in 2001 completely different movies obviously right but, but uh she helped me get to the emotional core of movies like ordinary people and with 2001 it was an emotional core but also a intellectual one anyway i remember going into the theater mm. <clears throat> I remember going to the, the Rhodes the, the Rhodes Theater was a great um, uh, theater in Atlanta that closed down about in the uh, maybe eighty two or actually it might have been eighty four that it closed down, um, but uh, it was a uh, it was a great uh, repertory cinema, and that's where I saw a lot of Kubrick films for the first time, but. Uh, for 2001, I guess uh, since it happened in it happened in 77, so right around that time, you know, you had Star Wars. Of, of course. course, the summer of 77. <clears throat> so it might have happened. Uh, I think it might have happened a little bit before me seeing Star Wars, to tell you the truth. Um, wow. I think it might have happened like in the spring. Uh, uh, so and Star Wars was like May. May so, 27, uh, 25th, yeah. Right. So um, I, uh, I think they were coinciding. But uh, uh, with 2001, uh, like I said in the piece, I remember my parents talking about it. Uh, 
maybe yeah, on... t- tell us about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can remember being in the back seat, and we would always have discussions about the movies we had seen, uh, whatever movies we had seen that that night or whatever, as we were mm-hmm. going home. And uh, I I remember my dad driving, and co- I think this was in context of a conversation about another movie that we had seen that we thought we collectively thought was stupid and worthless, and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and he, and my dad said, "Well, it wasn't as it wasn't as bad as that 2001 man. That's the stupidest movie I've ever oh, seen." Oh my goodness! Uh, 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 you know they were flying in space, and then there's this thing in space, and the you know there's this uh, block, and and uh, and and then at the end there's a baby, and I was in. And, <laughs> and, I, and I I remember my my mom kind of. Uh, my mom actually came around to loving 2001. But oh, interesting. At the, at, at the time, at the time, she was not, she was not taken with it either. And uh, 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 you know, I, I'm not even sure they ever saw it at a real theater. They might have seen it at the drive-in. I think. Uh, wow. I, 2001 at the drive-in seems like a kind of an. Uh, I'd like to see it. <laughs> but it seems kind of unimaginable in some ways. Yeah. But, wow. Uh, you know, after hearing them talk about it and everything, you know, it was just a big mystery. Uh, um, and uh, seeing it with Jane that afternoon was, uh, was, geez, I, I, it was a blur. Uh, mm. really. It was a blur of, um, uh, I was overwhelmed by it. I really was, and I, 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 I literally could not stop thinking about it for uh, probably weeks. Um, so I mean, it's it's difficult for me to even remember that first viewing of it, uh, but uh, it, it it was it was overwhelming. I think that's uh, probably a, a a bit of a phenomenon thing, in that you know, um, well, I can just relate. That you know, my parents uh, were still dating in 1968, and they uh, saw it, and they both, you know, had the same story. Which, well, in their case, I mean, they were young uh, hippies in love, and uh, you know, they probably uh, had themselves a, a little joint before they went into the theater. I can't confirm that, nor do I want to throw my parents under the bus. But they were blown away by it, and they're, you know contemporaries many of them were like oh i didn't understand it and there was that line right down the middle wow and 60 times on the big screen man how did you manage that oh geez okay so well i must have seen it at the roads uh probably about 10 times it played there constantly it was a it was a mainstay mm-hmm. uh almost every uh uh, uh, you know, it was a uh, repertory cinema, so it, almost every schedule had it playing at least once. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was the it, uh, it was the theater that it had played at when it opened. Uh, so I think it was just a favorite of the owners of the theater. But uh, not only that theater, but also uh, I know it played at uh, a Toco Hills uh, theater, which was a the theater that I uh, worked at. It played at least at two theaters that I worked at. Uh, oh wow! And so uh, I would go in there, you know, uh, when it played, you know. So I would see it like ten times in a week. You got paid to watch two thousand one on the big screen. 
Uh, well, I need. I probably <laughs> I probably didn't do it on the clock, but I definitely came in early. Then I worked yeah. at a movie theater when I was in high school, and I watched many films while on the clock. So it's not like you're going to get fired if you uh, say that you did that, my friend. Yeah, no, no, no doubt. <laughs> I, I definitely, I definitely did watch a lot of movies on the clock. That's for sure. So, awesome. I, mean, I have over the years. That's but, so cool. I know. I, I, I loved it. I, I, I love I, I still uh, cherish my memories working at movie theaters, even mm. though maybe at the time I wasn't so thrilled with it. But um, uh, but I don't think I would even like it as much, you know, now, uh, you know, I, I I worked at them at just the right time when there was a lot of good stuff coming out. So Yeah, I can relate to that. I mean, uh, it, it, it's funny. The, uh, the theater that I worked in in high school is in my neighborhood, and uh, it's an historic building. It was originally just one theater, and then in the 80s, they divided it into a, a triplex. And uh, But I had some great times and great memories and uh, a great girlfriend from uh, junior to senior year. And it's, you're right, it's not the same uh, nowadays. The, the multiplexes just don't have that same uh, uh, charm, for lack of a better word. H how did you get your job at the Rhodes Theater initially? Well, it wasn't, uh, I never worked at the Rhodes Theater, but I worked My at bad. Coco Hills Theater, uh, which was just right down the street from my uh, from my uh, uh, high school, and right. uh, I started working there when I was fifteen. Probably worked there until I was about nineteen, and uh, mm -hmm. um, it was actually the theater. That's actually the theater that eventually uh, the last movie that I ever saw there was Eyes Wide Shut. Closed down. 1999 or something like that. So, and it had the largest screen in the Northeast at the time. I'm sorry, in the Southeast at the time. The largest screen. Uh, it was a huge one-screen theater that uh, had just a little under a thousand seats. It, it eventually turned into a 90. It was a first-run theater, and eventually, when I was working there, it was a 99-cent theater. So you could come and see 2001 99 cents. We we had uh, uh, two theaters like that in our hometown growing up, and I I remember the, the 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 balcony seating and everything. So I have to ask you about Eyes Wide Shut. That's the last picture you got to see there, um, on that screen. Now, what was your reaction to it, Dean? Did you like it? Were you indifferent? I loved it, uh, but uh, I was I was a little perplexed by it, mm -hmm. but. Uh, I should I should backtrack and say that uh, my first viewing of Eyes Wide Shut was actually uh, at a preview screening. Uh, my uh, boss at Turner Network Television, I wasn't working there at the time, but uh, she called me and invited me to the screening because she knew I was a Cooper fan, and mm -hmm. <laughs> so it was a. Uh, it was a big deal. I, I I pretty much loved it from the beginning. Uh, I was, uh, you know, I can sense something was amiss with the orgy scenes because they mm -hmm. were, you know, that digital placement of the bodies and everything didn't seem very right. <laughs> to right. me at all. I, right. I, I, knew, I, can, I can feel that there was something there. Also, you know, of course, that screening was very, I was very verklipped at that screening because I knew that this would be the last time. That yeah. A Stanley Kubrick movie, you know, released on the big screen, you know, 
this would be the last time that I would feel this kind of mystery because you know every time you went to see a Kubrick movie, yeah, uh, before you saw it for the first time, there was just this overwhelming sense of mystery about it because yeah. you had only seen a couple of images from it, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know the 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 previews which were cut by Kubrick right. uh, were were intentionally short and uh, not didn't reveal very much. Right. And uh, um, so, yeah, I was, uh, there was this sort of feeling of, of being overwhelmingly uh, sad about it. Um, uh, of course, uh, you know, seeing the film, uh, you know, it, it's funny that that film is so challenging uh, and so dense. Mm -hmm. um, that there was a day I did feel like a danger of it going off the rails, you know. Uh, oh, that's at, interesting. Yeah, at, at one point I was like, I was like, eh, is he, is he losing us or whatever? I don't think that I was ready for, mm. uh, for the story to be told in that way, that sort of dreamy way. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't ready for that from Kubrick because you, there's a, I mean. There's a deep, uh, there's obviously a deep stylization with Kubrick, but there's also sort of this uh, kind of uh, adherence to the way things really are, and mm -hmm. uh, and in in that movie uh, he fools us a little bit. So yeah, yeah, you know, I, I think that's really well said. I, I also had the same uh, uh, sense of of loss, and you know, yeah, that this was going to be our final mystery to unravel it was it was really sad and i was perplexed by it so i, I can relate I'm, I'm guessing we're about the same age dean um so i mean how many i remember going back to see it a second time uh in the theater uh and then of course you know the dvd revolution had already happened so i bought it i only got to see it twice in the theater how many times did you see it in its original uh, theatrical run at least ten. At least ten, because at least ten. <laughs> wow. At least because I I remember seeing it because I, I I wanted to I just you know repertory th cinemas were were gone from Atlanta. At yeah. Point. So and if I was going to stay in Atlanta, uh, which I've hopped back and forth between Atlanta and New York City, uh, mm -hmm. I've lived I've lived in New York about ten years, so. Uh, 10 years out of my life. So, um, you know, if I was a full-time New Yorker, I wouldn't worry about it so much because I, oh, it'll come on over at yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. film yeah. forum or something like that. I'll be able to right. see it. Again. But I was like, well, there's no more repertory cinema. So I'm going to see this. I'm going to see this movie as many times as I can. And, yeah. And actually, <laughs> I, I feel I might have lowballed it with 10, you know, because I, I saw, uh, yeah, I yeah, it's got to be at least ten because I saw it. I saw it three times at Phipps Plaza. I must have seen it uh, four times at the at Toco. It played there for uh, two weeks, and um, yeah, so it's got to be about ten. So, were you writing movies at the time? Uh, I'm sorry, writing uh, uh, movie reviews. Uh, I don't want to say critic uh, at the yeah. at the time Eyes Wide Shut came out. 
I was, and I actually wrote uh, the review that you see on Filmicability, which is one of my first reviews that I posted back in, mm -hmm. I think, 2008 or whatever, is the review that I wrote for it for a local magazine called Sideshow. Uh, and uh, I, I went extremely long. They weren't used to... Uh, it, this was a, a little, you know, a, just a little, a, a little magazine, you know, and uh, the review took up four pages. So <laughs> I, they, they were not in, you know, tiny type and everything. And, and uh, I don't think they were used to that, but they printed the whole thing in, in, in its entirety. But uh, of course, when, uh, when I finally came around to, you know, realizing what a great tool the internet was in 2007 or whatever, and started filmicability. I said, "Well, I've got to re republish this," and I probably expanded it a little bit and stuff. But uh, yeah, so, but yeah, wow. I was, I've been writing. <clears throat> I I really started writing um, about movies probably when I was like 16, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, when I. Uh, <clears throat> when I got into college, the first thing I did was go to the uh, to the college newspaper and say, I want to be your film reviewer. And they put me on there like immediately. I mean, I think that day they gave me passes to, I think, uh, oh, well, my first movie that I reviewed was Repo Man. Um, wow. Which is good awesome. movie. Yeah, great movie. <laughs> That's a good movie to start with. Uh, and... Um, and, and then before I knew it, I was going to the 2010 premiere uh, it, uh, in Los Angeles, uh, probably about not more than two months after I signed up to be the reviewer there. So, you know, I really like took to that, to, to writing about movies, you know, and having a forum and seeing them printed out. People mm -hmm. reading them. I really took to that very well. And, uh, and, uh, I was I was really writing very heavily for the next four or five years. So. Right, right. Well, uh, I want to ask a few uh, rapid fire questions so we can get back to uh, 2001. How many times have you seen The Shining and Full Metal Jacket ballpark? Uh, the Shining is definitely comes in probably second because it, it screams so often. Uh, I mean, it really, like, that's the easiest Kubrick movie to see on the big screen. Now, I'm just talking about big screen totals here. Uh, that was probably, that's probably about 25, I'd say. Okay, wow. And FMJ, Full Metal Jacket? Uh, that, that's, that's a lot less. Probably only about four or five times, maybe. I, I, I don't know why that is. I think. I, actually, I do know why, because that, that was during the time that I was reviewing movies for mm. uh, for the newspaper. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I was just caught up with watching all these other movies. I wouldn't review all of those, but mm -hmm. uh, def definitely would see them. Saw as many as I could. Yeah, and uh, so so that's why I probably saw that one less. I've seen them all on the big screen, all Kubrick movies on the big screen, uh, except for, uh, I've never seen Killer's Kiss, uh, which is my least favorite Kubrick movie. Mm -hmm. Never seen, seen that on the big screen. I've never seen, of course, uh, you know, Fear and Desire, uh, mm -hmm. on the big screen either. No but, one has. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very, very few. Uh, 
you know, uh, in Boston, they have a yearly Kubrick festival uh, at the uh, at the museum there. I guess those the people in Boston have seen, you know, Fear and Desire on the big screen a little bit more. I got to see 2001 at the Wang Center. I went to Emerson College, so when it came through in uh, 97, we paid six dollars uh, ticket to watch it in 70 millimeter at Boston. Mm. Yeah, uh, takes the the, the Kubrick uh, film series annually pretty seriously. It's awesome. Mm. Okay, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I've seen them all. Uh, I've seen them all. Uh, other than those two, though, I've seen them all on the big screen at least once. Spartacus, I've only seen once on the big screen, but. I saw it at the Zigfield Theater in New York City, which was about as big as you can possibly get. Yeah, yeah. One of the great theaters in in uh, New York City history. Now closed down, unfortunately. But yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, you know, I, I, I've seen them all at least once. Probably, uh, probably in order, it'd be 2001 most, then The Shining, then uh, uh, Strange Love, mm-hmm. then uh, mm-hmm. then. Then probably uh, uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Mm, Stanley Kubrick. Mm. Not really sure of it, but at a guess, I probably think it was George and Mildred Kubrick's son who went off to America, t- Tinseltown. He was like a prodigal son. He was sent off with nothing, and he ended up being quite a famous bloke because he made a couple of films. Um, um, can't really rhyme any off, but I know all that he's some kind of film producer, short director, who probably got away with skin of his teeth through not asking girls to sleep with him for parts in films like all the rest of them. Um, that's about it, really. So, with regards to 2001. Uh, your, your latest blog on the film, you wrote, and uh, I believe the quote is, 2001's widescreen 65-millimeter super Panavision photography was originally intended for the Cinerama process, but as Cinerama is now extinct, most audiences have only seen 2001 in either 35-millimeter anamorphic or, if they're lucky, in 70-millimeter Though mostly these days, theater audiences are probably watching uh, the 2 to 3.5 aspect ratio digital files. Can you elaborate on the difference between those formats a little more for our listeners? Uh, Well, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, I won't won't pretend to be a complete expert in this, uh, but... um, 35 millimeter, uh, uh, obviously the screen's not going to be as big. The, uh, the image is not going to be as clear, uh, not, not as sharp. Uh, and they're, um, they're, taking, uh, they're taking a 35 millimeter print, at, which uh, if you look at the picture on the print itself, uh, it would look all squeezed together. And they unsqueeze it by using an anamorphic lens and, mm-hmm, and stretches mm-hmm. things out. Now, uh, with 70 millimeter, you don't need that anamorphic lens. If I'm, I think I'm correct on that. And right. obviously, the picture sounds right. Uh, obviously, the picture is bigger and uh, and clearer and sharper. 
that said, uh, uh, you know, I the last time I saw 2001 on the big screen was the I think the first time that I'd ever watched it projected digitally. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was a <clears throat> I have very strong feelings about digital versus versus. Tell us, uh, tell us what now, what's your opinion on the on digital prints compared to film in projections? Well. Well, film will always be better, and I actually wrote a I wrote a piece called "Defending 2001" on on the uh, Film Ability blog, mm-hmm. uh, uh, talking about the difference between watching something on film and watching it and uh, digitally. The big mm-hmm. difference for me, and it's something that's imperceivable, and people will see as. Uh, I don't know, maybe it's an interesting theory, but it's not theory, it's fact. Um, when you're watching a film that is projected on celluloid, uh, mm-hmm. your mind is constantly engaged because you're watching a picture and a picture and a picture and a right. picture project right. 24 times a second. And your right. mind is creating the illusion of um, of movement. That's all in Precisely. your mind. Precisely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> your mind is constantly making a connection it's between... F- filling in the blanks. Yeah. Yes. Okay. But with uh, digital, all of that work is done for you already. That... Yep. You're not seeing a picture and a picture and a picture. All that stuff is blended together for you. Yeah. So yeah. it's easier, I believe, for your mind to wander away. Uh, that is a really good point. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, it, it just—it's—it's it, just—it's—it's um, it's really just—it can't be more simple than that. Uh, no, I think you're right on the money. You know with it, that, it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, now, when I saw uh, 2001 projected digitally for that first time, and I, boy, boy, before the movie, I was, I was even more. I was like, this is going to be a disaster because the person running the projector was showing the uh, showing the computer screen and and everything, and they, I, it was like they didn't know what they were doing. There was a title page, and I was ah. Uh, I just want to yeah. <laughs> get this right. But, but I, you know, again, you know, it had been a, a little while since I'd seen it on the big screen and I still found it just as moving as I ever did. And uh, see, seeing it digitally did not uh, cut the guts out of it or anything like that. But yeah. I, do, I do have a sentimental attachment to seeing things on film. Uh, but you know, uh, you're not alone. You're not alone. You know, I... I I don't miss like you know going up to uh, seeing the film projected badly or out of focus mm-hmm. having to go mm-hmm. and complain about the focus or something right or or, or uh, I was a bit I'm big on also how things are framed like if there's too much headroom yep. or yep. too too little room at the bottom like it's mm-hmm. cutting off chins and stuff like that mm-hmm. uh, I will you know. I will definitely complain about something like that. So I'm glad (laughs) digital's gotten rid of some of that. By the way, I've seen 2001 at least twice, okay? It's the same Mm -hmm. print, okay? Mm -hmm. I saw a print of 2001 at least twice that had 
the famous cut of the bone turning into the spaceship completely cut out of it. What? Are you <laughs> kidding me? <laughs> yes. Oh my god. At oh least, my god. Stanley a, is spinning over. That's so wrong on so many levels. Isn't oh. that isn't it? But it, it happened at least twice and I and I knew the print. Uh I remember <sighs> I remember <laughs> I remember the print was really beat up, as you can possibly, as you can imagine. Yeah. So sometimes clearly. when you, when you would go and see, uh, you know, in in those days when you were when I was watching uh, prints of uh, certain movies at repertory cinemas, mm -hmm. sometimes you would see the very beginning of the print and realize, oh my God, I've seen this print before, and this is really bad. This does not. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, but I kind of miss all that stuff. <laughs> I miss beat up prints and scratches and stuff like that. Mm. I just, what can I say? You know, are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Oh, you're Hang here? On. Can you? I heard it happening on my end. Yep. Can you hear me, everyone? I'm I'm coming through fine and clear. Yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> you can hear me, Dimitri. <laughs> yeah. I agree with you. It's it's wonderful to be fine. <laughs> awesome, awesome stuff. All right. So let me jump back to uh, 2001. I want to ask. Um, I want to talk about the Dawn of Man sequence because as many Kubrick enthusiasts and uh, archivists know, the Dawn of Man sequence was in fact, uh, you know, developed quite uh, late in the project uh, and, and shot late in, uh, in, the, in the film. The, in fact, the last thing that was shot, if I'm not mistaken, what was your take on the Dawn of Man sequence? And uh, my follow-up is... In your opinion, how important is it to have started 2001 uh, with that sequence? Uh, well, it's absolutely essential. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I mean, as far as as far as the story uh, perspective goes, I know that uh, a lot of people, I guess, are confused by the the Dawn of Man I, I, uh, sequence. I guess. Uh, a newcomer to 2001 would say, "Wait, we're we're starting <laughs> we're starting with eight. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm positive right. that was something that that irked my father about the movie. Right, right. <laughs> I remember him now talking about it beginning with the apes jumping around. Yeah, uh, I I love the sequence. I love uh, I love its slow build up at the beginning. Agreed. Uh, all of those, all of those great photographs of the African uh, countries, oh, yeah. and so forth, and yeah, and you slowly start to see living beings, and and then mm -hmm. the ape, of course, and uh, and and the way that it it uh, kind of clues you into their lifestyle, mm. uh, uh, you know, obviously without words. Um, mm -hmm. Even without words, though, there's a lot of funny things in that first. Uh, <laughs> in oh, absolutely, that, yeah. I mean, you know, I find they're jockeying for position in the cave. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's funny, and there's that one one moment uh, right after the first confrontation with the two groups of apes. 
at the uh, watering hole. Yeah. Yeah, at the watering hole. After Moon Watcher has has successfully uh, driven the other apes away, mm -hmm. uh, uh, he looks into the camera <laughs> and does a big <laughs> rawr, you know, right. <laughs> yeah. Right into the camera, and I, I, find, I always find that amusing. So, you know, there's, there's, uh, and then of course you've got the majestic moments. Obviously, you know, Moonwatcher, you know, discovering the bone as a, as a tool, uh, is, uh, mm -hmm. is one of the great sequences. I always, always look forward to that uh, wonderful, like during that sequence, that wonderful uh, close-up. Of Moon Watcher as as he's smashing the bone down. Oh, it's brilliant! I mean, his awakening. I, I'm a big fan of, you know, purely physical comedy. I'm a lifelong Charlie Chaplin fan, and to your point, I think there is indeed a touch of comedy in the way that Dan Richter, who played Moon Watcher, just does these like beautiful, simple gestures. The head tilt. Uh, when he, it's, you know, of course, the moment when man first realizes that, you know, a tool can be a weapon yes. um, or, you know, and, and there's something in the way that he does that, which is, in fact, to my sensibilities and I'm sure many other people's like just slightly comedic. I love the way he does that. Have you ever uh, gotten to meet Dan Richter or did you read his book? It's called Moon Watcher's Memoir. I haven't. It's still a, uh, a yeah, I know he's been uh, interviewed for the show. Uh, mm -hmm. but, uh, I, he was um, great. He was wonderful. Yes. And I, and of course I've listened to that, but, uh, um, I, I've never gotten to talk with him. In fact, you know, the, uh, only one, the, uh, well, I've gotten to meet only four people from, uh, from the Kubrick universe, really. Name them, name them. Okay. Well, I met, I met Tom Cruise really early on before, uh, Eyes Wide Shut. He's from uh, my hometown. He's he's he and I are both graduates from uh, Glen Ridge High School in New Jersey. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, in Jersey. Yes, sir. He was class okay. of '82. I was class of '89. Wow. They say I they say I met him as he dated uh, one of my my next door neighbor had uh, either four or five daughters, no sons, and they were all gorgeous. But uh, he, I would have been, you know, too young to recall. Um, but that's a true story. So Tom Cruise and uh, who were the other three? Yeah, I met Tom Cruise in 86 at the premiere of Top Gun in New York City. Right um, um, uh, then uh, many years later, uh, I uh, in quick succession, I met um, uh, Matthew Modine at the uh, Tribeca. Awesome. Film. Uh, yeah, uh, I met him at the 2008, I think, Tribeca Film Festival, uh, where they screened 2001 in 70mm. Uh, wow, yeah. And they, uh, he was a guest, and Buzz Aldrin, uh, Marvin Mickelson, who, uh, who uh, kind of, um, I guess he consulted on 2001 as a, he was a consultant, yeah. the AI element of, uh, 2001 of, uh, of on how basically mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, uh and um what's her name andrew yan uh um 
Sagan, yeah, uh, Carl, Carl Sagan's widow was there. Oh, uh, oh, wow, wow. You know, uh, uh, who, who, you know, helped write Contact and so forth. So yeah, uh, yeah. <clears throat> so they were all there, and uh, I, I met uh, Modine there and uh, had had a photo taken with him. I said, I've loved so many of your movies. He turned to me and he said, really, like, name some of them. And I can only name, like, about four. Oh, no. Uh, I, 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 I really, I, I, I can only get, get four of them out. But I oh, see. my gosh. <laughs> you know. And That's I, hilarious. I, I walked away, I walked away later, like, going, ah. Oh, yeah. And then this one, but. Uh, uh he, he was nice i'm i'm not really into getting a lot of uh, uh autographs or whatever mm -hmm. so he unless i can get him to sign a movie poster or something because i collect movie posters sure but, um he gave me a great uh autograph that uh where he drew the helmet on it and and so forth and uh, oh are you kidding me that's awesome yeah so that that's a that's a great thing and um uh, then, uh, not too long after that, I met Malcolm McDowell, um, wow. yep. uh, uh, which that was a real interesting, um, thing because he was giving a talk at the film forum. No, it was at the Walter Reed cinema, uh, at, uh, Lincoln center. Okay. Uh, he, uh, he had just done a, uh, a film version of his one man show that was about, uh, his relationship with Lindsay Anderson. Uh, with whom he did uh, If and uh, Okay, yeah, yeah Oh Lucky Man and so forth mm -hmm. and uh, they were screening If and Oh Lucky Man and I knew he was going to be there so I had already seen If and uh, I went outside, I had my uh, uh, Stanley Kubrick archives book with me and um, Awesome and he came up and uh, we sat in the lobby and talked for about 20 minutes. And uh, uh, he was, he couldn't have been nicer. And uh, we talked mostly, though, about Oh Lucky Man. If you've never seen Oh Lucky Man, by the way, I'm just saying this to listeners, it's likely to be kind of a blind spot for them. But if you are a fan of A Clockwork Orange, then your fandom of that movie cannot be complete until you see Oh Lucky Man, which was his follow-up to Clockwork Orange, has a lot of similarities, but a lot of amusing differences to it. So if you've never seen Oh Lucky Man, you must go and see it, uh, especially if you're a fan of, uh, of that Kubrick film. Now smile. I beg your pardon? Smile. Why? Just do it. I'm afraid I can't smile without a reason. Smile. What's there to smile about? Just do it. Why? Don't ask why. What's there to smile about?
then I met uh, Kier Doulet, uh not too long after that at uh, the Film Forum. That's where I saw. That's who I met at the Film Forum. He was there for a, a screening of um, Otto Preminger's Bunny Lake is Missing, uh, and uh, uh, <laughs> I got him to got him to sign my 2001 poster and also a poster for. Uh, David and Lisa, <laughs> which he had not seen in many years. Wow. Uh, and um, Too cool. Yeah, and I, and I talked, uh, I, I uh, actually happened to be outside the theater when he was waiting for his car, and I asked him, the only question that I could think to ask him in that realm, <laughs> I don't know why <laughs> I asked this question, but uh, he seemed to think it was a little strange. But I said, were there any moments of levity on the set of 2001? Mm. I, I was wondering that because I'd always remembered that Kubrick, uh, you know, displayed great humor on the movies previous to it and after it. Yes, uh, yes. On, on Dr. Strangelove, of course, he famously had to stuff a, stuff a uh, handkerchief in his mouth to keep from laughing. I, yeah, I know. The, I know the story. <laughs> stuff that Peter Sellers was doing. Amazing. And, and then afterwards, his relationship with Malcolm McDowell during the filming of A Clockwork Orange, although it didn't end very well for McDowell mm. and Kubrick, uh, mm -hmm. I think I think that hurt McDowell quite a bit because he, he thought that they mm. were friends. Uh, but uh, they apparently had a wonderful, very, very uh, uh, laugh-filled kind of time doing A Clockwork Orange. So, uh, so I asked Pierre Doulet, was was Kubrick funny on the set of two thousand one? Was he was he jocular in any way? He said, "Nope, it was all business." Really? Oh, see, that's interesting because one of the questions uh, we'd come up with that we would love to ask uh, folks who knew him and or worked on his films was, uh, you know, I, I had this. Curiosity, knowing that an aspect of Kubrick's uh, personality that doesn't get enough recognition is, you know, indeed his sense of humor and obviously a sardonic wit. But I just thought it would be, you know, really cool to ask people who got to work on set, you know, do you recall a time when he made you laugh or did you tell a joke that made Stanley Kubrick laugh? So I'm, I'm fascinated that Keir said no, he was just all business. Yeah, because um, there are a few production stills I've come across where you can see it's clearly the set uh, on 2001 and Stanley's smiling at something. He's laughing uh, in the presence of other people uh, in some of these photos. So can't be possible that he was uh, entirely devoid of humor, you know, for the making of that one film. <laughs> and he was a really funny man from, you know, what uh, is out there uh, to read. I was sort of flummoxed at, at Dulé's answer, but I believe he was telling the truth. I think yeah. that uh, what, what he was, when he elaborated, he said, you know, he had so many things to juggle on that on that uh, set between the between the live action stuff and the and the uh, uh, the special effects aspect of it and the art direction and so forth and the scale of the thing and uh, not only the the physical scale but the mm -hmm. intellectual of it yeah um, yeah all, all of that uh, uh i i would imagine uh you know at least in Dulé's eyes uh 
he he seems uh he seems very resolute. No, it was no there was no laughter on that set at all. <laughs> well, you can imagine. I mean, he's also engaged in a tug of war with MGM over you know every aspect of production during that. So. Yes, that that would be enough to yeah make anyone uh, put their nose to the grindstone and just be serious. Um, yeah. Let alone you know someone who took his art and his work as seriously as as Kubrick. And I mean today, two thousand one is a Space Odyssey is widely regarded as one of the greatest, most influential films ever made. In uh, nineteen ninety one, I believe it was deemed. Uh, a culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant film by the U.S. Library of Congress, and it was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. Then in 2010, it was named the greatest film of all time by the Moving Arts Film Journal. Like what? I mean, we would all agree with you already, but for our listeners, why do you think, Dean, that taking on just this huge cinematic mantle? It, it's just the biggest story that you can possibly tell. That's the that's the bottom line of it. It's the only movie that that tries to go uh, that that goes before we you know before we were human to uh, to the to the realm of the superhuman. Of course, we haven't reached yet, so right. uh, no other movie can do it. Uh, uh, no other movie could ever come close. Uh, if any movie ever tries, it'll be uh, lambasted. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I can't, I can't imagine another movie even trying to do anything that that two thousand one does. Uh, you know, I mean, there are a lot of, you know, a lot of great, uh, mind blowing, trippy movies, and uh, no question about it. But this, this particular. Uh, you know this this sort of sweeping kind of tale of all of humanity. <laughs> that's yeah, that's the bottom yeah. line of it. The fact that it does it so well uh, is the uh, other part of it. You know, and and that all comes from Kubrick's obvious determination. You know, I mean, he was if if nothing else, yeah, he was certainly that. Um, now, uh, not trying to uh, uh, create any rift among our amongst our listeners uh i do have to ask obviously uh christopher nolan the director has never been shy about his uh deep admiration for kubrick and there was a lot of uh uh talk uh when interstellar came out so there's no right answer dean what was your take on uh that film uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 i mean you know, <laughs> it's it's a, it's a sentimental mess. <laughs> oh, I you're like, great. I like, I like some of his stuff. I mean, yeah, obviously, yeah. I like I like Nolan's stuff. I, I think I think Dunkirk <laughs> is one of the best movies of the year. But uh, I don't. Uh, I I did not react to that movie very well at all. I I you know I. I'd already seen that movie. It was called Contact, and uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Kind of, it kind of turned out exactly the same way as Contact did. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and Contact, by the way, you know, I, I went back and took a look at Contact again, and that movie doesn't hold up at all. So, it, um, yeah, I have to agree. I watched it again uh, only a few months ago. It's, yeah, it's unfortunate. It, there are some movies, don't you find? There are some movies that you you 
are rooting for, like you really want to like them and you wish they could be better. So you go back and watch it again and just, it doesn't, the sum of all parts doesn't add up. Yeah, I mean, sometimes, you know, movies are like magic tricks and sometimes you see, mm. the, you see the trick once and you you already know how it was done and mm -hmm. some of some of the some of the just magic is totally out of it uh, when you try and go back and watch it for the second time. Uh, mm -hmm. In the case of Contact, it seems strangely dated. Like uh, even though it was only made in '98 or whatever, yeah, yeah, uh, it uh, it it feels like it feels like it's a like maybe from the '80s or something. Yeah, I don't know. yeah. There's there's some good things about it, but. The best thing about it, which is the opening sequence, is actually stolen from another film. It's stolen from uh, uh, a Charles and Ray Eames uh, uh, short film called Powers of Ken, you know, which shows the, um, that that whole thing of the zoom out from the from the Earth and, and yeah. into the the uh, the rest of the galaxy and so forth. That's all. That's taken from from another movie. So. Um, I mean, it's really kind of, a, it's an homage to it. I won't yeah, say it's yeah. but, uh, but, you know. I, I uh, didn't know that. That's fascinating. Yeah, the Powers of Ten is, is available on YouTube. Uh, you, you just, you know, put the title in, and mm -hmm. uh, it's about 10 or 11 minutes long, and it's really fascinating. It's got a score by uh, Elmer Bernstein, and oh, uh, wow. a really, uh, it's electronic score, and uh, it, it, wow, it, it it's a really fascinating piece of animation and documentary filmmaking, and uh, it, it's it's great. The picnic near the lakeside in Chicago is the start of a lazy afternoon, early one October. We begin with a scene one meter wide, which we view from just one meter away. Now, every 10 seconds, we will look from 10 times farther away, and our field of view will be 10 times wider. This square is 10 meters wide, and in 10 seconds, the next square will be 10 times as wide. Our picture will center on the picnickers, even after they've been lost to sight. 100 meters wide, the distance a man can run in 10 seconds. Cars crowd the highway, power boats lie at their docks. The colorful bleachers are soldiers' field. This square is a kilometer wide, 1,000 meters. The distance a racing car can travel in 10 seconds. We see the great city on the lake shore. 10 to the fourth meters, 10 kilometers. The distance a supersonic airplane can travel in 10 seconds. We see first the rounded end of Lake Michigan, then the whole great lake. 10 to the fifth meters, the distance an orbiting satellite covers in 10 seconds. Long parades of clouds, the day's weather in the Middle West. 10 to the 6th, a 1 with 6 zeros, a million meters. Soon the Earth will show as a solid sphere. We are able to see the whole Earth now, just over a minute along the journey. The Earth diminishes into the distance, but those background stars are so much farther away that they do not yet appear to move. A line extends at the true speed of light. In one second, it half-crosses the tilted orbit of the moon. Peter Hyams' sequel, 2010. Now, you were at the press junket for that when you were still in your teens. 
So yes. please, I mean, can you tell our listeners about that event and also what is your opinion of the film? Uh, does it hold up? And I'll, I'll start with the last part first. Mm -hmm. uh, my opinion of the film wasn't very high getting out of the movie. I, I didn't, um, there were mm. some things I liked about it. Obviously, I loved seeing uh, the set of the Discovery rebuilt. Mm -hmm. I loved I loved hearing, you know, uh, Douglas Rain's voice again and, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and getting to hear, uh, getting a little background into how, but, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and his motivations. But I feel like the movie kind of uh, really appealed to, was meant to appeal to people who didn't like 2001. Yeah, <laughs> and, that's, a, that's something and, I've heard elsewhere, right? And and didn't didn't uh, didn't appreciate being left without all the answers. So the movie tries right. to answer things and put a label on things that I prefer uh, be left unlabeled. So uh, yeah, yeah, that's the that's the uh, that's the big thing. I mean, uh, uh, but uh, you know, I was still thrilled to be there, and uh, uh, all the major players were there. So uh, almost. Uh, in fact, nobody was not, you know, only, you know, Kubrick wasn't there, obviously, but uh, yeah, right. <laughs> Arthur, Arthur C. Clarke, um, uh, Pierre Doulet, uh, Roy wow. Scheider, uh, Helen Mirren, who, uh, you know, at that time, I mm -hmm, didn't, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, she was just becoming known to uh, people stateside. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 John Lithgow, Bob Balaban. Mm -hmm. Peter Hyams was there. How are you going to convince your people to allow Americans to go on the flight? We are going to get there first, and you have the knowledge to make the trip work. I'm going on the flight. How far away is Jupiter? Far. Mommy said you're going to be asleep for a long time. Are you going to die? Dr. Floyd. Dr. Floyd. Dr. Arlov has encountered some strange data coming from Europa. We'll send Max down with a pod. I wouldn't do that. Oh, really? If you want to send a pod down there, send an unmanned one. Hey, a piece of pie. Cake. Piece of cake. Cake, yes. If this data is correct, then there's something down there. It is correct. It was organic. There was life. Is it moving? Yes. It's incredible. Listen for a minute. We've got to get out of here. I can't just order us to leave here for no reason. Forget reason. There's no time to be reasonable. I can't find him! Are you sure you're making the right decision? I think we should stop. Something's going to happen. What? Something wonderful.
to your point, it was a, a little uh, um, disjointing when I saw 2010 in the theater and all of a sudden Roy Scheider is Dr. Haywood Floyd. It, that was, but I mean, that's not to criticize the film. And I do think he did an outstanding uh, job taking on the role. And uh, I, I enjoyed his performance, uh, but I always did, always do anything he, he was in. Um, yeah, that's cool. I mean, did you get to meet him at the uh, at the junket? I did. I get to meet him, and I, I actually spoke to him. You know, we were doing sort of round robin interviews, so it was like uh, three of the people would come and join. You know, it'd be like ten ten journalists at at a round table, and then three of the three people would come and join us for 20 or 30 minutes and then they would move on to the next table and then three other people would come and three other of the participants yeah. would come and sit down with us and so forth. Of course, at the time, I think I was most thrilled about the Arthur C. Clarke because I thought, oh my God, how am I, <laughs> you know, and I was too nervous to speak to him to be quite frank. I was, uh, it was, uh, I had not yet uh, gotten you know, this was my first celebrity interview ever, and you're you're faced <clears> with all this stuff. And uh, still to this day, I uh, sort of kick myself because I don't have the original recordings. Uh, and if I did, I would probably just transcribe them all and publish them. But unfortunately, I don't have them anymore. I recorded some of the the interviews, but I knew that I was only going to be able to use a certain amount of it. So there were some of them that I might not have even recorded. Uh, so mm. but, um, I have regrets about the 2010, you know, coverage and everything like that. Uh, and I was doing it under extreme deadline and wasn't used to traveling back and forth. And it, it was just the first experience of any of uh, any of this, uh, any of this type of work. Uh, so it was a little overwhelming for me. But and and also the fact that it was 2010, the sequel to my favorite movie of all time. Right. Uh, right. It, that that was an immense pressure and so mm. forth. Uh, well, you was, certainly sound. It sounds. It sounds like you certainly learned from it and uh, learned pretty damn quickly at that. I, I, I um, did. It was a bit when you. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, I mean it must have been no. So when you were at the junket and you, I mean, you met Arthur C. Clarke uh, along with everyone else. Obviously, 2001 was already your favorite uh, film, but had you also been an Arthur C. Clarke fan? Had you read his uh, novels and short stories uh, by the time you got to meet him? I had only read his nonfiction work, uh, Man in okay. Space, uh, mm -hmm. Man in Space and The Lost Worlds of 2001 and a couple of other things. Uh, I, of course, read the short story, The Sentinel, uh, but mm -hmm. frankly, uh, fiction, reading fiction. I'm I'm a huge reader of nonfiction, and I, I've never been a fan of reading fiction. That's uh, so interesting, uh, Dean. I'm the same way. I, I'm not kidding you. That's so yeah. interesting. It's weird. I don't know I, why? Yeah. I could kind of pinpoint it to just I I just get kind of uh I just kind of drift away when uh people are describing things. You know, like. Okay, a woman going up a going up a uh, you know a flight of stairs or something, describing every step and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, and yet and, and yet we both love fiction films. I mean, yes. it's 
That's where I get my. I just make hmm. the. I, I just make the excuse <laughs> that I, I like seeing the experience and having the experience rather than reading the experience. Me but as this, well, and I I do love to read. It sounds like you yes, love to read too. I do, but I do, but only. I, I like reading about real things. <laughs> it's so funny. I'm wow. Okay, I'm not alone. <laughs> I, I was. I, I'm glad to know that there's somebody else out there that uh, you know feels that. Agreed. That Agreed. Yeah. It's wow. What an interesting uh, connection there. I'm exactly you, the same, by the way. <laughs> oh Steven yeah. Is, yeah. There you go. There you go. Mark, have you an opinion? Now I know Mark reads a lot. Uh, like Mark reads a lot. Period. I have several book clubs. Yeah, yeah, I'm a book club person. I love reading fiction books. Hate uh -huh. nonfiction books. Yeah, I don't know. I just, uh, you know, I've only, uh, I've only read two books before I've seen the movie. Uh, so that is uh, the world according to Gart. Love them both, John <laughs> and, Irving, and The Shining. Right, the Sh right. I read. The you know, I read The Shining before the uh, the season before the movie came out because I knew the movie was coming out, so I wanted to read it. Uh, no, I, and I'm still not a huge Stephen King fan, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know. Uh, but um, yeah, so I, I don't know. It's just I, I, the last fiction book that I read was by Nicholson Baker. It's called The Fermata. Um, and Mark is a, Mark is a fan of his. If Mark wants to say yeah. something, yeah, yeah, I am with Nicholson Baker. I read the Mezzanine, which is one of my all-time favorites. Uh huh. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think the Fermata is uh, is amazing and would make a great movie, but uh, a very difficult movie to make in today's climate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to read it now. Thank you for that recommendation. I don't. I don't think anybody could make that into a movie now. Do you know what it's about? Uh, no, I do no. not. I do not. No, no, I don't. The Fermata has a fascinating, a fascinating uh, storyline. But here it is in a, in a sentence: A man discovers that he has the power to stop time and and be the only one moving through it. However, he doesn't use this. For any other reason than to take women's clothes off. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! You gotta love it. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's the story. So, uh, but uh, I always thought that was uh, that was an interesting interesting uh, subject. <laughs> well, that's certainly uh, uh, yeah the makings of a page turner right there. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to. I want to bring Stephen in. I know Stephen has a question for you, Dean. If that's cool. Okay. Hi, Dean. Hi. Stephen here. Hi. Uh, yeah, you just. Uh, you were just talking about Stephen King there. Now, didn't you interview Stephen King in the early days? I did, and uh, one of, one of these days I'm going to get that up on Filmicability. Um, I interviewed him in uh, 1987, uh, or was it 86? I guess it was 86. Because uh, mm. he had just written and directed his first and only movie, which is called Maximum Overdrive. Maximum Overdrive, so out of the <laughs> yeah. theater. What a stinkburger. Yes, terrible. But uh, <laughs> at the interview, uh, one of my favorite quotes from anybody that I've ever interviewed before, uh, Stephen King, who was, by the way, uh, 
uh, I have to say, uh, uh, was under the influence of something. And he would agree. I mean, he would probably admit it now. Oh. Uh, he's, you know, famously sober now. He was, uh, he was, he was definitely coked up. Let me just say that. He, he <laughs> and, 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 and in fact, in fact, I think he still had some coke in his oh, mouth. Like, oh, I, my God. I saw it. Uh, <laughs> it was fine. It was awesome. But, uh. Uh, <laughs> but oh was, my God. Uh, about maximum overdrive, he said, "He said uh, this is going to be the greatest science fiction movie of the year. You're not going to get a better science fiction movie than Maximum Overdrive. I'm telling you." Oh my God! So, uh, the next month, I guess, came Aliens, uh, the James Cameron's Aliens, right, right, and, and also Cronenberg's The Fly. Yeah. So, my boy, he he should have waited before he walked yeah. out. Yeah, or just kept his mouth shut about uh, uh, singing its uh, the praises of his one and only uh, film he directed. Yeah, that was a real maximum overdrive on his part, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> he was on maximum overdrive. Let me just say that he was. Oh <laughs> my god, that's brilliant. <laughs> Yes. Oh my God, and yes. and 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 of course, a Aliens and The Fly. I remember vividly how they just absolutely dominated the box office. I mean, me and my buddies went to see both at least three, four, five times in the theater, oh, and everybody yeah. and everybody talked about them too. Those were the yes. juggernaut films of that uh, summer of '86. Hi, my name is Stephen King. I've written several motion pictures, but I want to tell you about a movie called Maximum Overdrive, which is the first one I've directed. Wow. What in the dickens is going on around here? A lot of people have directed Stephen King novels and stories, and I finally decided if you want something done right, you ought to do it yourself. Who was driving it? I don't know. Curtis, it's coming after us! It was my first picture as a director. And you know something? I sort of enjoyed it. What is going on? I don't know! I just wanted someone to do Stephen King right. You want a war? You got one. <laughs> I just want to get the hell out of here. So come and spend some time with me and my friends at the Dixie Boy. Spend some time in the dark. Please don't let okay. me in the dark. I'm gonna scare the hell out of you. And that's a promise. You're gonna get us in an awful lot of trouble, man. We already in trouble. Maximum terror. Jesus coming and he is. Maximum King. Maybe tomorrow will be our world again. Dino De Laurentiis presents Stephen King's Maximum Overdrive. Maximum Overdrive we went to because we had heard that the uh, original soundtrack by ACDC was going to be played at Maximum Overdrive volume. That The movie theaters were actually... Uh, equipped to broad to to project the audio at like concert level, 
right. or they yeah it was crazy it had, was just a, that, it had all that heavy metal in it right yeah and, yeah yes uh, the soundtrack I, was by the band acdc and i just right. remember like a packed theater with teens you know who were all uh, on their own substances probably just you know like weed and and uh you know crappy american lager but yeah. uh, everybody was just like it was a, a raucous event when the uh the acdc songs kicked in you know all of these metalheads in the theater were like you know it was like they were ready to charge the stage at a concert you know but there's no band it's a movie screen <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's and crazy. I and I and I, I came out of the, the theater with my buddies, and and I think one of them was like, "Oh man, that was awesome!" And the rest of us were just like, "Did you just watch the same movie that we did?" That's that's a movie to be avoided, like a turd on a tray of hors d'oeuvres. I don't got a clue. Stanley Kubrick. Because I've heard his name before. Is he uh, some kind of film? Does he produce? Is he a movie producer? Yeah. Is he? Is uh, what, his, what are his films? Is it? Uh, I don't know what films he's made. Aliens. I want to jump back if it's cool uh, to. 2001 because of the age we're now living in with technology the advances in medicine human evolution technology artificial intelligence i mean 2001 a space odyssey dealt with a predominant number of those themes and 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 then of course the film ai did which was of course developed by kubrick and uh given to uh uh Spielberg, produced and directed by uh, Steven Spielberg after Stanley died. What did you think of AI? Um, uh, except for, I, I love it. I, I love it. I love, I love the ideas in it. Uh, mm. uh, I, I hated when people sort of excoriated the movie for having that last 20 minutes, you know, mm -hmm. which I thought was the best part of the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I, you know, uh, you know, people said such absurd things like they they wanted the movie to end with him under the water and just mm. leave the water. What you want the yeah. movie to end that? That's crazy. Uh, but uh, uh, but I loved AI. Uh, the only things that I didn't like about it were the things that I thought were too Spielbergy. For instance, uh, every one. Uh, well. I guess there's only there's the there's the Robin Williams cameo, and there's a Chris Rock cameo, <laughs> where Chris Rock that's right playing one of the robots that yeah. gets destroyed. Yeah, uh, I hated those touches. Um, I also, uh, you know, I kind of bristle at some of the uh, some of the more Spielbergy flavored moments of the first part of the movie with. Um, Haley Joel Osment or David mm -hmm. uh, in mm -hmm. there with his uh, surrogate family or whatever. Mm -hmm. Some of that, some of that stuff with the other kids, I thought was didn't ring right to me. But other than that, I really loved it and uh, and was moved by it. Uh, and I still think um, that scene with uh, with the mother 
leaving David behind has to be, uh, you know, leaving him to fend for himself out in the woods has to be one of the most shattering moments in the Kubrick and the uh, Spielberg uh, oob. Uh, yeah, no, I, I love it. I love that John Williams score. The Janus Kaminsky photography is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, there's, uh, I guess one of the best things I can say about it, too, is that Spielberg was successful in sort of resurrecting Kubrick, at least for a brief moment. Um, yeah. Something about that, the way that it begins and everything with that mm-hmm. Ben Kingsley uh, narration with the ocean coming towards us and everything, uh, getting us up to speed on that world. And that there was something that was a wonderfully Kubrickian about that and a great, great choice. And, it just brought Stanley alive just for a moment there. Yeah, I have to agree with that. Cheers. That, that's well said. Um, because, yeah, it was the one last little remnant of sorts that uh, we got. That's, that's all there was after that. When's your birthday? I never had a birthday. His name is David. Feel it. That's creepy. Whoa, that's so real. <laughs> in a distant future, in an age of intelligent machines, he is the first robotic child programmed to love and coexist as a member of a family. His is a tale of humanity and a journey to find his place among humans and machines. I'm a boy. You are a real boy. At least as real as I've ever made one. Have you you ever seen, I think it's a fairly recent interview with Jan Harlan. He describes his his adoration of it and that he he goes so far as to say that he thinks that Kubrick would have loved it it's basically taken shot by shot from uh Kubrick's storyboards which he gave to Spielberg yeah i i i think he uh i think he would have uh i think he would have liked it uh um if not loved it and uh yeah no it's hard to say it's hard to I mean, uh, you know, Kubrick embraced Spielberg as a filmmaker, so uh, not just mm-hmm. as a colleague, but as a filmmaker as well. And uh, you know, he wouldn't have given yeah. the piece over to him if he didn't think that he could do it right. You know, I I like to think that Kubrick might have taken him aside and said, "Did you really have to put Robin Williams and Chris Rock?" <laughs> other than that, I think you know, I think he would have approved. <laughs> I think he would have been fine with having Meryl Streep as the voice of the fairy and and the yeah, yeah. narrator, but those two things I don't know they're just they're just they're a little silly I guess a little schmaltzy a little schmaltzy yeah I can I can totally uh, agree with that yeah uh, that take on it um, I mean I I like some good schmaltz but you know that 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 just didn't that didn't pass the sniff test. Yeah, no, I mean, and not to not to knock Spielberg, there are many people, you know, who are diehard Kubrick enthusiasts who, for some reason or another, feel a need to put Spielberg down. And I, I am certainly not one of them. I know Steven's not one of them. 
I mean, Raiders Raiders of the Lost Ark changed my life when when it came out. And uh, I mean, I, I, I can tell you honestly, Dean, that the very first memory I have of a, a movie and what a movie meant. I was a small kid, uh, uh, just a, and I remember seeing uh, the, on the TV screen there was a news broadcast about this new film in theaters, which was causing people to run out of the theater uh, in in terror, just like the old uh, monster movies, the Universal monster films had done. And I was just, you know, barely uh, uh, self-aware at that age. But to this day, I, I can honestly admit that I watch Jaws four or five times a year, maybe more. I'll just put it on sometimes. And uh, it's one of those films like The Shining and, and, and others, 2001, where I'm just so familiar with it that I can almost listen to it as a radio play or just kind of have it on in the background as a comfort uh, piece while I'm doing something else. Or I can just sit th- sit back and totally groove out on it. I-, I think Jaws is an amazing, amazing film. And Spielberg obviously did a lot uh, more great work. But, you know, for anybody, any listener who wants to, you know throw Spielberg under the bus, you know, two things. Remember that, you know, Kubrick had a very high opinion of him. He envied that Spielberg was such an efficient and prolific filmmaker, and he lamented that he wasn't able to work as fast as Spielberg. He was his personal friend. And the other thing is, you know, go watch Jaws. Anybody who thinks that that Spielberg couldn't do something really great, even on Kubrick's, and, uh, you know, the obvious one would be the Hitchcock analogy, something on that level... Spielberg, absolutely, you know, capable of that. No question. So, oh, and yeah. I mean, but, so go, I, have, I have a question to follow up on that. But what are your thoughts? Yeah. On, on, on Spielberg, just in general, I've, uh, you know, he's got hits and misses. And, mm-hmm. and you know, uh, so uh, I, I, I lament the misses, but uh, but I prefer just to think about the hits. <laughs> so, yeah, 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 totally. I mean, I I agree. I don't spend any time thinking about Hook, for instance. You know, <laughs> you know that's that's ab- absolutely the nadir of his career, if you ask me. Is that is that movie? But uh, I, I think the only person who does is Dustin Hoffman. But that's <laughs> yeah, because yeah. it bought his house. <laughs> yeah, but uh, uh, right, right. <laughs> but uh, I, I uh, uh, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a uh, huge admirer of Spielberg. I'm not, I'm not looking forward to Ready Player One, but yeah. I am, I am looking forward to the Post. So you know, there's a, I'm, you know, I, I don't think he should be doing movies like Ready Player One. You mm-hmm. know stage of his career i don't i, I don't know it's just uh it's it's it doesn't seem like it's going to be a movie that a you know 71 year old director should be directing but I don't yeah know. I, don't no, know. <laughs> I i i i was very intrigued when i heard talk in the of it from friends and then uh uh you know the trailer dropped on youtube and i i i, I hope i'm wrong but i was just like why why yeah. are you making that yeah um, yeah and you know and spielberg is you know 
has basically, you know, like embodied the uh, the young rebel director who went on to help change Hollywood. I mean, there's that great book. I forget the author, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, that yeah, talks Peter about Biskind. the. Yes. What was his name again? Thank you. Peter, What's his Peter Biskind. Biskind. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. I, I read that in college, and that was just a great read, and it it shed so much light at a time when I was barely using the internet for, you know, email and nothing else. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now, but Spielberg, you know, he morphed into the classic Hollywood director. And then, you know, we have Kubrick, you know, and he made almost all of his films outside of the Hollywood system in literal terms, apart from a few in the 50s. Uh, you know, he did, in fact, make them with the Hollywood studios in terms of his finance. So my question, Dean, is like, what debt do you think Hollywood owes to Kubrick? For instance, is like the reinvention of the sci-fi genre with 2001, perhaps even the horror film with The Shining. Um, Do you think his films helped uh, helped the landscape of films in financial terms for Hollywood movies in general? Uh, Well, I think... I think the big debt <clears throat> that we owe Kubrick is to realize that, uh, okay, so we've got this uh, massively, uh, this this art form that's massively collaborative uh, by necessity, and yet Kubrick let us know that a film could still be collaborative, and yet every single aspect of it could bear the mark of its creator and uh, that it was possible for an artist to work an artist you know we think when we think of artists you know people think of painters and so forth they're writers and they're working in solitary confinement and then they they release something and out into the world Uh, and uh, but with Kubrick Working in this realm, it's a little bit more difficult to do that kind of that kind of uh, sort of obsessive kind of work in, uh, on film. And mm-hmm. Kubrick, and to a certain extent, David Lynch uh, have uh, let us know that uh, it is possible to uh, do a film and and have have every single aspect of it, uh, you know, marked by its uh, its mastermind. Uh, right. But, uh, as far as financial, uh, you know, it's weird. I, I don't think of movies in those terms of like, I don't think about the the fact <clears throat> of what they're making at the box office. I think it's, uh, or or I I just don't even think about those things. Yeah. You know? Yeah. As as a signpost to quality or whatever, you know. Right. I mean, right. I hate it when people say. Well, it made five million at five yeah. million at the box office. It must be good. Yeah, that does, that's of course not true. I mean, once they have your money, they take it. You know, they, they take your money, and then it doesn't mean that you're going to come out of the theater saying, "Well, that was the greatest thing in the world," or whatever. Right. Uh, so, uh, so it's uh, you know that's that's success in marketing. It doesn't necessarily mean the movie is a success. You know, we owe a big debt of gratitude to. Uh, those film execs, like I guess it was Roger Mitchell, 
MGM that sort of mm-hmm. stood behind Kubrick while the while the budget for 2001 was ballooning. It was originally a 6.5 million budget that went to 10.5, which you know doesn't sound like a lot these days, but uh, back then it was like spending you know 100 150 million dollars on a movie. So. You know, we owe a debt of gratitude not only to him, but also to John Calley, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, who protected Kubrick and let him do things the way he wanted them yes. to be done. Uh, when he moved over to Warner Brothers after 2001, you know, right, he, right. He pretty no, those are really good points about Roger Mitchell and John Calley. Uh, yeah, you know, have, having Stanley's back, um, and in that respect just as uh integral in in uh the debt that is owed by hollywood to you know kubrick and and his legacy i think yeah. that their uh, those two guys those their actions and backing kubrick i think that let hollywood know that it, it is it is within their grasp to act as a patron to uh people who have filmmakers artists that have difficult and uh, intriguing vision. To yeah. yeah. So, you know. But I mean, the, the intriguing vision, you know, of 2001 was just, you know, profound, doesn't even begin to, uh, you know, touch its impact on popular culture. I mean, straight ahead, you know, up to the pop-up video commentary that you were commissioned to write for Turner Network Television back in the day, um, you know, it's, it's, it's influence is, is still, you know, TV commercials, family guys, Simpsons, what have you. But when you were commissioned to, uh, write the, the pop-up video commentary for, uh, 2001, uh, by Turner Network Television, do you remember how that came about? And, uh, and, and I know it's, it's not available, but what exactly is that, Dean? Cause it sounds cool. <laughs> well, okay. So, so you're asking, what is the pop-up? Uh, yeah. Well, basically, you know, if you remember back in the late 80s to early 90s, maybe it was the early 90s, they started having, you know, MTV started showing uh, videos and they would have uh, they, they would have pop up video. It was called pop up video. And they, in fact, stole the idea from a show based out of Minnesota called Mystery Science Theater 3000, which has gotten a re, uh, resurgence in popularity. They did a crowd sourcing and uh came back on netflix uh it was a guy the premise is a guy and his two robot pals are shanghaied in a satellite in a geosynchronous orbit around the earth and these mad scientists uh back on earth uh send them these b movies which they're forced to watch and at the time it came out i was hooked immediately because i thought these guys are just doing what countless nerdy american teens like us did, which is, you know, talk over the Kung Fu movies, uh, uh, the Saturday afternoon drive-in uh, uh, TV shows they had. Mystery Science Theater 3000, you know, abs- may not have pioneered that in the sense that, you know, a lot of people were already doing it. But I remember MST3K. I still love it to this day. One of my very favorite shows. Um, the writing in it is just brilliant and it touches upon everything in pop culture. In the not too distant future, next Sunday, AD, there was a guy named Joel, not too different from you or me. He worked at Gizmonic Institute. 
And I remember noticing when uh, I believe it was VH1 MTV's offshoot started to do that program you're talking about called pop up video. And I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, way to ape, you know, somebody else's idea. But it, it has since become a thing. And it's, you know, no longer a matter of aping someone else's idea. It's just at the time, MST3K tapped into a a void of a market, you know, and, uh, mm-hmm. and this, and the zeitgeist, uh, for the need for that pop culture cross-referencing is still with us. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you get, how did you get commissioned by TNT, uh, to do your pop-up video and did well, they run it? Did they ever run it? You know what? Uh, uh, okay. So an editor from, it was actually for Turner classic movies. Okay. Uh, so, but I was working at Turner, uh, Turner network television at the time. And uh, uh, they uh, they knew me. They knew. I, I mean, at that time, I had worked there for about four years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they they knew that I uh, knew my stuff. I mean, right. They, they, the uh, the editor that asked me to do it knew that 2001 was my favorite movie. We had had discussions about it. And so, uh, so he thought that I would be the perfect person to do it. He had read some of my stuff that, you know, I was there at the beginning for the, uh, for the Turner Network Television website. I was, Mm. I was the one that told the marketing people that we needed to have something called a website. (laughs) (laughs) What's that? Yeah. They didn't know what it was. I was. I was there, you know, working, uh, you know, answering emails for uh, for uh, viewers of the network and so forth. And mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I was part of the programming department there. Oh, and that's it, where I, I remember you from now. Yeah, you were the guy who wrote me that nasty, leave us alone, I'm busy here. I, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, I always, uh, it never... It, it, and people could ask anything, and I and I was I, I was very forthcoming, and I, I was very good at the job. Um, no, I'm teasing. But, I'm sure. But occasionally, 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 you would get some people that that would rub you the wrong way. Um, so why don't yeah? Why don't why don't they? Why doesn't somebody, you know, uh, put that on the next DVD release, the next Blu-ray? I mean, that I don't that know. I, sounds I don't to know. me like that. Yeah, as a special it's features funny, it's guy. Funny. I never a- saw. Okay, first, first of all, okay, when I did the piece, I sat down mm-hmm. and said, okay, this is going to be my opportunity to do every say everything I want to about this movie, uh, but I wanted to stay away. Like I said earlier, I wanted mm-hmm. to stay away from kind of trying to dissect it for people or explain it for people or anything mm-hmm. like that. 
also, uh, so so I sat down to write this thing, and I think I went overboard. Uh, uh, this piece, because if you've ever seen a pop-up video uh, for something, you know, just like a Go-Go's video or something where they do the pop-up right. yep. on it. The pop-ups that come up are only about a sentence or two, maybe. Right, uh, right. Whereas if you look at the thing that I wrote, it's like, it's 30,000 words. Um, so, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a special features junkie. I know there's uh, an army of us around the world. I just can't imagine why that won't get put out on like a future Blu-ray release. I, I have uh, no idea what happened to it. I never saw a uh, I never saw a version of it. I know a version of it was created because I know some people who saw it uh, on on the, on the air. But wow. uh, I, I never got it got to see it. I got paid for it, but I, I didn't. <laughs> I never got to see it. I never got a Ain't copy. A, oh and, my god! Ain't that and, a kick in the pants? I know it really. It it uh, it's okay though. You know I I. Uh, and it's funny, uh, the piece that you see uh, uh, online now, it lived for about 20 years in my, uh, <laughs> in my, uh, in my files. Like, uh, I, I didn't even have, like, the original computer file that I had written it on. I, wow. had, to, I had to go back uh, and take the 25, 30-page piece and uh and rekey it into the computer uh in in that process i also expanded it uh so it's it's now quite a bit it's probably about five thousand or seven thousand words bigger than it was when i first submitted it to to, uh turner classic movies Uh, wow when i yes Oh, here's an idea. Maybe, maybe uh, you'd be uh, willing to work with Stephen in post production and doing like a bit of a simulation. I'd love to do that because that that's got to be out there, man. That's so cool. Yeah, I, I uh, you know, when I uh, when they gave me the uh, assignment, they gave me a copy of the movie on VHS mm-hmm. that had a sippy time code on it, which stands for Society Motion Picture and Television Engineer. And uh, so uh, I would have to write out the time code part where I thought the pop-up, the particular pop-up piece should pop up at. And I tried to uh, read it uh, and see if this length of time would be enough for this particular piece of information. So I really Mm -hmm. had down and time it all out and make sure that it worked and I had to speak it and so forth to make sure that it would it would read properly and uh, and so you know when it was all when it was all over when I you know went from the f- first frame of the movie to the last frame uh, you know the thing was 30 pages long single space so really 60 pages for double spaces uh, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, it, it, it just, uh, you know, but a lot of that stuff, um, you know, of course I have it, you know, uh, uh, I have a lot of the, I have a bibliography, so I did have sources, obviously, but a lot of that stuff just came from my memory, uh, because I had read about 2001 so often, particularly 
I, you guys must have this book, The, the Making of Cooper 2001 by Jerome Angel. Have you ever uh-huh. uh, You know, that's a great little uh, paperback book that was done like in the early 70s, I think. And, um, uh, and that book was my Bible. Like I would carry right. that. I would carry that to school, uh, to, to high school and read it constantly. It was always on me. Uh, I had friends, you know, cause it had 90 pages of pictures in it and fr- friends would like to look at the pictures and stuff. And, uh, but, uh, I think everybody was like very confused about my, my colleagues in school were very confused about my love of this movie, but yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, uh, it's something that I had, you know, a lot of that information that's in the filmicability piece, in the pop-up, was just stuff that was ingrained in my uh, head. It took about two weeks to write, uh, and then when I, uh, initially, back in the 90s, and then uh, when I uh, pick, picked it out of my uh, files, you know, I said, I've got to commit this, put this down before it just disappears. And, uh, I, uh, uh, that took another two weeks just to type it all in and format it and uh, expand it and then illustrate it with the frame grabs from uh, screen musings and also the, uh, the links, which I, I, I still have some links that I have to add to the articles that appears on Filmicability right now, but... So I'll probably still put in another few hours on it, but uh, yeah. So it, it, it's take it took me a long time to do that. We now have our live remote man on the scene. Scass field reporter Mark Lentz is on location in New York at 1633 Broadway, now known as Paramount Plaza. It's a 48-story skyscraper which opened in Midtown Manhattan in 1970. It was built on the site of the former Capitol Theater where 2001, A Space Odyssey, premiered exactly 50 years ago at 8.30 p.m. on the 3rd of April, 1968. I'm now going to hand it over to Mark, who is there to commemorate the film's 50th anniversary. Over to you, Mark. Uh, Let's see, it's now 7.57, and the movie started at 8.30. So people would have been queuing up here. I'm actually, this new tower, which to my mind resembles the monolith, it was the style that was popular at that time, which I guess is called the tower in the square. So that the tower itself is set back from the sidewalk. And I'm sitting here in the plaza. I am the only one sitting here. Reminds me of the time one time I was at the Museum of Modern Art and I came across Van Gogh's Starry Starry Night and I was the only one looking at it at that moment and the guard wasn't looking at me I felt this tremendous sense of responsibility and privilege so I guess I feel little about of that now I'm also reminded of Wallace Shawn's play, The Designated Mourner, where somebody in certain tribes, if somebody dies and they don't have any family, then the tribe designates a mourner to go through all the motions to mourn for this person. 
Today I'm the designated celebrant of 2001 during the hour, well, during the half hour before the premiere and then the moment of its starting, which is in 20 minutes. And I was kind of hoping maybe I'd see a ghost or two. Right now I'm just a, I guess, to everyone else, I'm just a crazy person talking to myself in uh, a wet plaza. Uh, 2001 ran for 26 weeks here. 1633 Broadway was originally known as the Eurus Building for, I don't know, whatever rich guy built it. I guess he had some company. But in order to build one of these block block-wide uh, skyscrapers. They not only tore down the Capitol Theater, but several theaters that were right behind it. And as part of doing that, they had to uh, give something back, as they say in Robocop. And that was to build some theaters within this building. So this building still contains a gigantic theater. So I'm actually standing in the plaza and Therefore, in the lobby, the space where the lobby would have been uh, for the Capitol Theater. And I'm now walking back towards the street and looking at Broadway and the Winter Garden Theater across the street, which is pretty much just like it would have been all these buildings right directly across the street are still the same as what anyone would have seen back in 1968. Uh, I don't know what was showing there, what was playing over at the Winter Garden then, but it's known these days for an endless run of cats, followed by an almost equally endless run of uh, Mamma Mia. And now what do we got? School of Rock. I'm planning to spend the full hour until 9 on this plaza. I set it up as a meetup for our New York Kubrickians, but I'm doubtful if anyone will show up. So it's misty. It was rainy all day, but now it's just kind of misty and foggy, which is actually the nicest kind of night in New York City, I think because of all the light, all the illumination. It's caught by the fog. I believe that Kubrick would probably have been interviewed, let's see, from... <clears throat> he probably was standing in the middle of the street. Uh, we started in 1965, early 1965. Well, I became interested in the idea that <clears throat> the universe uh, was full of intelligent civilizations, which is the current scientific belief. Well, the facts in the film only help you believe the story, but uh, the, uh, the scientists know now that there are about a hundred billion stars in our galaxy and about a hundred billion galaxies in the visible universe. The point is that there are so many stars in the universe that the likelihood of life evolving around them, even if it were possibilities of one in a million, there would be hundreds of millions of worlds in the universe, is it? Broadway's about three lanes wide at this point, 
and I saw in a picture that they had the traditional spotlights shining in the air, the truck with the spotlights on it. Haven't seen one of those in years, because I don't think there's been many premieres around here in years. Got to talk quickly because it's now 8.20 and I do want to observe a minute of silence at 8.30. I am going to record a minute of silence at 8.30. That would have been when the music started playing and nobody knew what was going to happen. <laughs> All right. There should be some kind of monument here, I think. You know what would be perfect? There should be a monolith sitting here. It would fit perfectly in this square. It should go right where that Warner Brothers music group. I think I'm going to post that on the Scott site. But we well, yes, now 827. I think I'm going to stop talking at 830 and just record a minute of New York sound, 50 years to the minute, uh, from that opening silence as people were waiting for the curtain to go up. So everyone got quiet, the lights were going down, sense of expectation, and in retrospect, the surprising thing is that even one person is sitting here 50 years later. I don't think Stanley would have imagined that, or anybody. You know, what other movie do we remember 50 years later? Can't think of one. But no, I think 2001 was the biggest event as such, cultural turning point. I got to keep an eye on the time here, 8:28. But okay, I'm going to be quiet because it's now 8:29. I'm going to just record a moment of silence. I mean, a minute of silence, starting in just seconds from now. New York. April 3rd, about to be 8.30, 2018, starting in just a couple seconds now. thing in New York that's uh, endlessly part of New York, it's sirens. So we sirens going somewhere. 
Okay, that was one minute. Speaking of long time, you've been so great to give us so much of yours, Dean. And um, I don't want to keep you. I, I, I know it's also pretty late where Stephen is. Can I just ask one last question and then we'll, uh, we'll let you go? Absolutely. Cool, man. Um, well, it's just in reference to uh, MGU. I mean, Movie Geeks United, the podcast that you co-host uh, with Jamie Duvall and Jerry Dennis, uh, and I'm sure all of our listeners, many of our listeners would be quite familiar with, uh, you'd been producing a continuing series on Kubrick called the Kubrick Series with its uh, spinoff shows, Kubrick Uncut. So not so much a question, but... Uh, Please uh, tell our listeners about that so they can check it out. Let me just say this about, about, about the Kubrick series. I know that Jamie has, has uh, done a thing where uh, it's now like monetized, like you have to buy a kind of a subscription to it to hear it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but when you buy the subscription, which is a $10 subscription, uh, you get not only the entire Kubrick, uh, access to the entire Kubrick series, and access to all of the uncut interviews, but also you will get. We still have two more, two more uh, episodes to do, and I know that Jamie is getting ready to uh, to drop the uh, full metal full metal jacket episode. Oh, uh, cool! Where we'll have uh, you know conversations with Matthew Modine and uh, and uh, Vincent D'Onofrio at least. Yeah. Uh, I'm not quite sure who else he's got connected with that uh, 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 in that piece. And then, of course, he'll get on to Eyes Wide Shut. Why is it taking so long for uh, Jamie to do this piece? Uh, uh, and I would say the reason is that he's never been he's never been a huge fan of Full Metal Jacket. So it's taken him a long time to do it because he hasn't been able to get up enough uh, enthusiasm to do it. Uh, mm -hmm. But, uh, but I, I, I kind of got on him a little bit and, uh, and uh, said, well, you got to finish it. You got to, we got to get to Ice Wide Shut so we have the whole thing. Right. Uh, and I know that he's a huge Ice Wide Shut fan, so I think that will be maybe a little easier. I don't, I'm not sure. <laughs> that'll um, motivate him. Yeah, that'll motivate him. That's that's going to be great. I mean, uh, SCAS, you know, Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society and and uh, our podcast, the Kubrick's Universe, uh, will definitely help get the word out as we obviously owe you guys a huge debt uh, to begin with. And uh, you really uh, broke the ground on uh, on on getting that off uh, uh, and up and running. I mean, it's it's uh, it's really compelling listening and. I'm, I'm just, uh, all I have to say is I'm lucky to be connected to it. I mean, uh, you know, it's really Jamie, Jamie uh, Duvall's uh, work that we're seeing there. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, it, he's, uh, he's just amazing. And uh, he's an amazing interviewer. And it, he's got also a great, uh, you know, just keeping the show going and, and everything. He, he, he's, a, he's a fabulous editor. Uh, you know, I'm just lucky to be part of it, really. And. Uh, and uh, and to be fair, they're lucky to have me. <laughs> so. Yeah, hey, hey, amen to that, brother. Amen to that. Well, I I agree with uh, the first part of what you said, and I mean, I I, I can relate in that I feel really uh, honored to be a part of uh, 
Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society and now Kubrick's universe. And, uh, we, you know, we're just trying to get it right. Um, I hope, really hope you enjoyed your time with us. I want to bring Stephen and Mark back in, but uh, that's all great, Dean. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. I'm sure the listeners really got a kick out of it, man. Thanks so much. I, I, I thank you and I'm, I'm honored to have been asked to do it. And, uh, and I thank you guys for, for tuning into the show. And, uh, I just, uh, you know, I'll just keep on doing it as long as I can. Please. Yeah, do you just keep on doing what you do, do, do until it's done, done, done. Um, ladies and gentlemen, the inimitable one and only Dean Treadways. Thank you so much for joining us on Kubrick's University, and you're the man. Thank you. Thanks, Dean and Jason. We spoke to Dean on the 29th of September, 2017. Don't forget to check out Dean's podcast at Movie Geeks United and Dean's great website. Uh, just Google Filmic Ability and you'll find it. Thanks to Mark Lentz, who joined us on the show and also helped with research. Mark runs our SCAS chapter in New York City. If you are in the area and would like to attend Kubrick-themed events, just Google Stanley Kubrick Meetup and join the group. This year, 2018, they are focusing on 2001 and 50 and have already held around a dozen 2001-themed events in the city, uh, with many more coming up. Thanks to Wiggy from Accrington and Daz from Barrafford for telling us who is Stanley Kubrick. And of course, thanks to our host, Jason Furlong. Thanks to James Marinaccio and Jason for keeping the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society on Facebook in check. Next episode, we will be chatting with film director David O'Reilly about his latest film, the award-winning Kubrick by Candlelight. I'm now going to leave you with a behind-scenes look at the inner workings of SCAS Central. I'm Stephen Rigg. Tati bye. Guess what I've been doing uh, before, right up to us joining onto this podcast. I've been editing uh, Filippo's interview as well. Of course you have, because <laughs> <laughs> you are the <laughs> caretaker. I've been I've been reading <laughs> Filippo's book all day, so yeah, isn't it a good book? That <laughs> it's a great I book. Was, I was telling Jason that somehow Stanley has reached out from the grave and made us all his slaves. <laughs> Well, his army, anyway. Yeah, he's in, he's in, enlisted us. He's enlisted us to be the, the, the new army. The undead Kubrick army. Well, certainly not. I was going to say, certainly not an army of zombies. I mean, so, yeah. Well, I mean, so that makes sense. Steven's been editing, you've been reading, and I spent the entire afternoon uh, uh, profusely meditating. But that's, you know, that's like a normal weekday for me i mean it's par for the course you've got to prepare yourself for these conversations haven't you yeah yeah how do you deal with the you know the the the, The tension yes yeah you gotta just shake it off shake it off it's kubrick's universe we just live in it We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. Come back soon.